The three finalists we honor tonight are, in a sense, proxies for everyone who published a short story collection in 2010. We chose them from among 85 books we received as entries for the award. And each of those authors accomplished something significant through their persistence and devotion to the form. Our finalists tonight are Anthony Dorr for Memory Wall, which is published by Scribner, Yi Yun Lee for Gold Boy Emerald Girl from Random House, and Suzanne Rebecca for Death is Not an Option from W.W. Norton. When Julie and I have our discussion in January about the books that we'd like to, to choose for, as finalists for the Story Prize, we talk about the books we most enjoy and admire. We don't analyze the books like critics. Um, we don't look for commonalities or try to build a program. We just choose the books that we like best. Uh, you know, later, certain similarities inevitably emerge. For instance, memory is the theme of Anthony Doerr's collection, but of course, memory plays an important part in Yi Yun Lee's and Suzanne Rebecca's books as well. The stories each writer writes share a quiet intensity and quiet confidence. Things happen, but nothing ever feels forced. I've been reading loads of short stories for some time now, and I can tell you what I'm looking for. I'm looking for stories that deliver something I wasn't looking for. And these stories do that in spades. I don't want to be startled, but I do want to be surprised. Not necessarily by what happens to the characters, but more so how I experienced that through the writer's sensibility. I want to feel something that goes beyond the words on the page in a deeply personal way. I want to see the world differently, but I also want a sense of the familiar, for a story to stir up buried thoughts and feelings, hidden knowledge, in a way that my own direct experience of the world infrequently does. All three of these books succeed at that with intelligence and grace, as you'll hear tonight. Each finalist will read from her or his collection, and then we'll have an intimate onstage discussion in front of hundreds of people. <laughs> Our three judges, Marie DeVore, John Freeman, and Jane Ann Phillips, have already selected the winner, and Julie will announce the outcome at the end of the evening. But until then, our aim is to honor each of these accomplished authors for the short story collections they've given us and to get a sense of that work and the person behind it. Memory Wall is Anthony Doerr's fourth book and his second story collection. What we liked most about the book was the audacity of, of Doerr's imagination. These six stories span the globe through an array of characters and very original situations. Anthony Doerr. Hey, everybody. It's nice of you to clap. Most of you don't know me. Take that. Thanks, Larry. Thanks to the Chisholm Foundation. Most of all, thanks to all of you guys. It means you care about short stories that you came tonight. It's very nice. It's a very near and dear form to my heart and hopefully to yours, too. So uh, Larry asked me to read a little bit from my first story in this collection, which is called Memory Wall. And so I'll just read like three pages, and then I'm going to have an intimate conversation with him. So thanks again for coming. Uh, this story's long. It's about 85 pages, so you get a sense if I read about three pages of it, you're only going to get 
4% of it. <laughs> well, you'll get a little narrative movement anyway. Uh, I'm going to start reading on page uh, 13. And I think all you need to know is that Alma, who is in many ways the protagonist of this story, is suffering from advanced dementia. She has Alzheimer's. And um, she lives in Cape Town, South Africa. And her houseman, although that's a controversial term, house boy is in particular, is Faco, uh, P-H-E-K-O. He takes care of her. Once the name Harold comes up, that's Alma's deceased husband. I'll point that out. This story is told in sections. Each section has a title. Um, the title of this section is Treasure Island. You all right? Can you hear me all right? All right. At sunset, Faco poaches a chicken breast and lays a stack of green beans beside it. Out the window, flotillas of rain clouds gather over the Atlantic. Alma stares into her plate as if at some incomprehensible puzzle. Faco says, Doctor, find some good ones this morning, Mrs. Alma? Good ones? She blinks. The grandfather clock in the living room ticks. The room flickers with a rich, silvery light. Faco is a pair of eyeballs, a smell like soap. Old ones, Alma says. He helps her into her nightgown and squirts a cylinder of toothpaste onto her toothbrush. Then her pills, too white, too gold. Alma clambers into bed, muttering questions. Wind-borne rain starts a gentle patter on the windows. Okay, Mrs. Alma, Faco says. He pulls the quilt up to her throat. I got to go home. His hand is on the lamp. His telephone is vibrating in his pocket. Harold, Alma says. Read to me. I'm Faco, Mrs. Alma. Alma shakes her head. God damn it. It's a little crazy when you're giving a reading and there's a small chance you might get a trophy at the end of it. You're like, maybe I shouldn't curse. Should I cut out the curse words? (laughs) It's nice to know they already made their decision. (laughs) Alma shakes her head. God damn it. You've torn your book all apart, Mrs. Alma. I have? I have not. Someone else did that. A breath, a sigh. On the dresser, three lustrous wigs sit atop featureless porcelain heads. Ten minutes, Faco says. Alma lays back, bald, glazed, a withered child. Faco sits in the bedside chair and takes Treasure Island off the nightstand. Pages fall out when he opens it. He reads the first paragraphs from memory. This is the beginning of Treasure Island. I remember him as if it were yesterday as he came plodding to the indoor, his sea chest following behind him in a hand barrow, a tall, heavy, strong, nut-brown man. One more page and Alma is asleep. One more section. This section is called B478A. It's an address. Faco catches the 920 golden arrow to Kyalicha. He is a little man in black trousers and a red cable-knit sweater. In the bus seat, his shoes barely touch the floor. Gated compounds and walls of bougainvillea and little bistros lit with colored bulbs slide past. At Hanny Street, the bus pauses outside Virgin Active Fitness, where three indoor pools smolder with aquamarine light. A last few swimmers toiling through the lanes, a water slide disgorging water in the corner. The bus fills with township girls, office cleaners, waitresses, laundresses, women who go by one name in Cape Town and another in the townships, housekeepers called Sylvia or Alice, about to become mothers called Malili or Montolo. Drizzle streaks the windows, voices murmur in Hosa, Sotho, Swana. The gaps between streetlights lengthen. Soon, Faco can see only the upflung penumbras of billboard spotlights here and there in the dark. Drink Opa. Report cable thieves wear a condom. 
Kailicha is 30 square miles of shanties made of aluminum and cinder blocks and sack cloth and car doors. At the century's turn, it was home to half a million people. Now it's four times bigger. War refugees, water refugees, HIV refugees. Unemployment might be as high as 60%. A thousand haphazard light towers stand over the shacks like limbless trees. Women carry babies or plastic bags or vegetables or 10-gallon water jugs along the roadsides. Men wobble past on bicycles. Fako gets off at sight C and hurries along a line of shanties in the rain. Wind chimes tinkle, a goat picks its way through puddles. Torpid men perch on fenders of gutted taxis or upended fruit crates or beneath ragged tarps. Someone a few alleys over lights a firework and it blooms and fades over the rooftops. B478A is a pale green shed with a sandy floor and a light blue door. Three treadless tires hold the roof in place. Bars seal off the two windows. Temba is inside, that's his son. Temba is inside, still awake, animated, whispering, nearly jumping up and down in place. He wears a T-shirt several sizes too large. His little eyeglasses bounce on his nose. Paps, he says. Paps, you're 21 minutes late. Paps, Bogankosi caught three cats today. Can you believe it? Paps, can you make paraffin from plastic bags? Faco sits on the bed and waits for his vision to adjust to the dimness. The walls are papered with faded supermarket circulars. Dish soap for $1.99, juice two for one. Yesterday's laundry hangs from the ceiling. A rust-red stove stands propped on bricks in the corner. Two metal and plastic folding chairs complete the furniture. Outside, the rain sifts down through the vapor lights and makes a slow, lulling clatter on the roof. Insects creep in, seeking refuge, gnats and millipedes and big, glistening flies. Twin veins of ants flow across the floor and braid into channels under the stove. Moths flutter at the window screens. Faco hears the accountant's voice in his ear. You had to see this coming. Faco has just been told that Alma's going to need 24-hour care and that he's going to lose his job. He sees his silver pen flashing in the light of Alma's kitchen. Did you eat, Temba? I don't remember. You don't remember? No, 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 I ate. I ate. Miss Amanda had samp and beans. And did you wear your glasses today? I wore them. Temba, I wore them, Paps. See? He points with two fingers to his face. Faco slips off his shoes. Okay, little lamb, I believe you. Now choose a hand. He holds out two fists. Temba stands barefoot in his overlarge jersey, blinking his brown eyes behind his glasses. Eventually, he chooses left. Faco shakes his head and smiles and reveals an empty palm. Nothing. Next time says Faco. Temba coughs, wipes his nose. He seems to swallow back a familiar disappointment. Now take off your glasses and give me one of your barnacle attacks, says Faco. And Temba stows his glasses atop the stove and leaps onto his father, wrapping his legs around Faco's ribs. They roll across the bed. Temba squeezes his father around the neck and back. Faco rears up, makes exaggerated strides around the little shed while the boy clings to him. Paps, Temba says, talking into his father's chest. What was in the other hand? What did you have this time? Can't tell you, says Faco. He pretends to try to shake off the boy's grip. You got to guess right next time. Faco stomps around the house. The boy hangs on. His forehead is a stone against Faco's sternum. His hair smells like dust, pencil shavings, and smoke. Rain murmurs against the roof. Stop there.
going to be intimate. Yes. <laughs> this, the story is set in South Africa, right? Yes. Now, is that someplace that you had been? Did you go there for research, or had you spent time there earlier? Um, both. Well, I, I had spent just two weeks there in the mm-hmm. 90s when I was in college. I went to Africa and lived there for about seven months. But um, I was supposed to go back. Uh, I wrote this story for a magazine called McSweeney's. They wanted us to imagine a place, uh, each of us a different place around the world in the year 2025. Mm -hmm. And so I chose Cape Town very early in the construction of the story and was using my notes from journals. I've kept a journal for a long time. So I had, you know, maybe 14 pages of notes from when I had been in South Africa. But uh, I was really excited to go back. I had bought McSweeney's help pay for the ticket and everything. And I think it was like six days maybe before I was going to leave, I tore up my knee very badly skiing. So um, I was very disappointed I had to cancel the trip and stuff. But the amazing thing was it confined me downstairs. We have a two-story house. So I had to stay downstairs. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the point I tell, like, if I visit book clubs, they're like, painkillers, painkillers. <laughs> right. Because I started, you know, having to take a lot of painkillers after the surgery. And it, I really fell into this groove where I was writing in the middle of the night. I was writing a lot on that story. I was kind of outside of my family for a little bit because I could only move, like, from the kitchen to the little bed downstairs. So it was a very intense period of time writing the story. And mm-hmm. although I had to use more of a South Africa of the imagination than I normally would have, in some ways, I think that worked for me in, that, in this case. I was totally convinced. I haven't been there, but I, I didn't doubt either that, that the characters were there. Yeah, now, talk a little bit about the actual, there's like a technological aspect to this story with, with how the memories are stored and, and work can just explain that a little bit because right. I think that's a really interesting element of the story. Uh, yeah, so I, the whole kind of conceit of the story, the reason Alma is bald, is that she has had these implants planted in her brain that can locate specific memories and kind of drain them or extract them and put them on cartridges. It sounds very sci-fi, hopefully. Oh, that's all right. If that's cool with you, right. then I'm happy with that too. Um, I had read, uh, I was reading a book um, called What We Believe But Cannot Prove or Scientists Would Try to Conjecture About the Future. And there was a neuroscientist in there. And he argued that pretty soon we'll be able to locate memories, actual specific memories in our brains, where they're stored. And he, his argument is that they're in the extracellular space. So we're actually filling space up with neurons, and that's, there's an actual physical shape that we may be able to stain. So I just took it further and said, what if we can extract them? So she has a memory that's very valuable in this story, mm-hmm. and some people are trying to steal it. So do you you do a science column, or you have, haven't you? Uh-huh. Are you do you have a have you always had an interest in science? I, I, I've seen that in other stories you've done also. You bring that into it. Yes. Um, yeah. I've, for seven years now, I've written a column about science books for the Boston mm-hmm. Globe, and I really enjoy trying to fold that into my work. I've always believed. I grew up with a mother who's a science teacher. Mm-hmm. We were the nerdy kids who had to identify all the bugs, you know, in right. the neighborhood and. Um, I've always believed that it's a little bit artificial to have the science building on one end of a university campus and the liberal arts building on the other. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're both ways to ask questions about why we're here, science and literature. And I don't necessarily see them as disparate fields. Fiction writing is really an excuse for me to investigate various curiosities. Really, Mm -hmm. reading is for me, too. So uh, I I get really excited about something. In this case, it was fossils. This story is mostly about fossils, fundamentally. And so uh, that, this story was really an excuse to just read a bunch about fossils. 
It's nerdy, isn't it? <laughs> no. Not at all. We, we, all, we all love reading about fossils. Uh, I knew it. I knew yeah. there was somebody else. The, the idea of memory in this story and in the collection, is that, was that an intention of yours before you wrote this story to write a collection about memory, or is that something that emerged as you wrote the stories as you put the collection together? Um, probably mostly the latter. The oldest story in the book is a story called Village 113 mm-hmm. about the Three Gorges Dam and the submergence of villages in China. And I fictionalized one particular village when they built this huge hydroelectric project most of you probably know about. It's the biggest in the history of humanity. And uh, that story, I wasn't thinking, oh, now I'm going to write a collection about memory. But after that story was finished, I was working kind of simultaneously on several others, one about the Holocaust and this mm-hmm. one about fossils. And I started, you, you don't necessarily, as a, at least I don't think, okay, now I will write a book about memory. But right. occasionally you're doing the dishes or you're playing with your kids and you ask yourself, you know, what is this thing I'm making? And then you think, how, what kind of threads can I start to highlight that maybe will make them more cohesive? Right. I was trying to resist the idea of connected characters. I feel like um, that has been done very well. Like, you know, a character who recurs in collections, you know, like Winesburg, Ohio or something. Um, and I, I wanted to try maybe more of it like a neurological thread mm-hmm. to tie the stories together. Also nerdy. <laughs> so you, you generally believe that a story collection should have something to connect it, not just... Uh, I, that's a great stories. question. I don't know. You've read so many. Yeah. I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah. For, for me, I don't. I don't. I think you can't escape if one intelligence is putting them together. There's right. already going to be a continuity to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think that um, I, I try to resist. My editor has been so supportive of me in trying to write diverse stories. And I try to resist the idea that we need to apologize for a story collection being a story collection, almost like print stories yes. really small on it or really not even say that not it's a story collection. Not even put stories on it, right. So you're like, chapter two is sure different than chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> like, Why does every chapter have a title? <laughs> yeah. And different right. characters. Yeah. So I, I think uh, one of the many strengths of a story collection is that it potentially range more widely than a novel. Right. And maybe encompass a greater variety of human experience. Maybe if you think of the subject of a, of a writer's interest as a courtyard, you can make a lot more windows onto that courtyard in a story collection. And you... No, it's a good answer. Okay, all right. <laughs> Don't undermine yourself, though. <laughs> okay. Um, and in this collection, you are... They really are diverse. I mean, they're all over the world. They're at different times and places. And, you know, I think that's... In a way, I think maybe that disconnection is almost a theme, that okay. you're having something in China, something, you know, in, uh, what was it, Lithuania? Yeah, there's a whole story and, in Lithuania, and, and, Wyoming, and, and all Germany. all times and places, so... I mean, it asks more of readers. It asks right. more from readers. It, you know, and there's not a lot of networks that would take a chance on a mm-hmm. sitcom that takes place with different characters in a different house every single week. People would be like, well, I like the last guy. What happened to right. him? What happened to Charlie Sheen or whatever? And I think that's people's problems with story collections sometimes. It's the stops and starts that they have to invest themselves all over again. Yes, and I understand in that. something new. Yeah. Uh, but that said, there are thankfully some folks who are willing to read that, you know, and put a little maybe more significant mental energy into it. It doesn't mean I don't love reading novels. I mean, once you're right. 60 pages into a novel that you're falling in love with, it's so comfortable each night to go back to. 
you know the space you're entering, you know what's at stake for the people. It's like, uh, you know, if I'm going to stay with the TV analogy, it's like Mad Men or something. You know the people, mm-hmm. you're excited to see what next week will happen again, serialized pleasure. Right. So it's your, you've written a novel, you've had a memoir, a couple story collections. Is your approach different? Is your writing day different depending on what kind of thing you're working on? Um, in some ways, no, because uh, also because I'm writing for a newspaper fairly regularly, I just kind of go to work, and whatever mm-hmm. I have to get done that day, I get done. But in other ways, it's hugely different. Stories for me are so much freer because if it fails, if it's intrinsically miserable, you've only wasted three or four months of your life. You know? <laughs> and when you get into a novel like this one I've been working on for a long time, although I kind of took a break to write two other books, I'm kind of six years into it, and you, you feel like you, you're holding pancake batter, and you're just trying to keep it all in there. Right. A great pleasure for me writing short fiction is that you can read through everything you've got in one day. Even these longer stories, which get to be like twelve or 15,000 words, you can still wake up early, have a lot of caffeine, and then get through the whole thing and make it feel of a piece. Mm-hmm. And in a novel, like the novel I wrote was 440 pages or something, and there were parts of it that I had written two or three years previously. And you become a wholly different person. You become a parent or something right. in the middle That's of one of these projects. And you, you have to go back and change a lot of the stuff that you thought was good two years previously. That's a good answer. All right. <laughs> Do you have a preference? When you're, well, let me ask you this. When you're, you're working on a novel now, are the story ideas still coming? And what do you do with them while you're focused on this novel? Uh, you know, I have like an ideas file, and I uh, occasionally will wake up really excited about a new idea, but that's really a betrayal of the novel because you've got right. early energy. You should put that energy into your current project. But, um, so you're betraying yourself even though you're working. But yeah, I have way too many ideas. That's kind of a problem. I don't really understand the writer's block problem so much as... I'm too interested in too many things, and you really need to buckle down and focus on the one thing you've been working on for a while and get it done. Yeah, well, I think sometimes the block is against buckling down and focusing on one thing. It's not on not that you can't write, that you've got the blank page. Yes, it's a failure of nerve. Well, you're writing thousands of pages, but you're not finishing it. You got it, totally. It's fear. I have some of that. <laughs> yeah. Scary thing. You you mentioned the you know your interest in science and you kind of mentioned science fiction in a way. And you, in some cases, your stories kind of veer into, um, let's say, speculative fiction. Yeah. Is that is that fair to say? And, and where do you think the line is between a literary story, speculative fiction, science fiction? Do you is is that something you resist that idea of of science fiction or? Um, no, I don't resist it. And the problem is I get the question a lot because mm-hmm. occasionally semi-magical things will happen in my stories. But I just have no answer for it. Really, for me, it's all just ways of asking questions about the person at the center of the story and whether or not I've concocted something that isn't necessarily plausible in real life or not. Really, that just makes it harder to write because you have to convince your reader that such memory cartridges right. would be possible. Or in my first book, a woman sees the souls of dead people leaving them, you know, and it takes you a lot longer to convince people maybe that could be possible in this world. But really, you're just asking the question, how would a human being that I've created behave under these extraordinary right. circumstances? So the key I is... I feel like it's still Sherwood Anderson, even though it's... Right, not. it's not the idea. The idea is not at the center. It's the characters yes. acting as they would if, if it were just an ordinary... 
circumstance, not something you, you made up. Yes, I hope so. That's my goal, anyway. It's still a human story, fundamentally, even if one element of the story is magical. Yeah, very, you know, like a very old man with enormous wings. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you guys know that Marquez story. Right. You know, I mean, that's the classic one you teach when you teach magical realism. But really, he's just detailing the little mites crawling along the feathers of the wings and the man's kind of ragged condition. And mm-hmm. uh, he's just telling a story. He's not sitting down thinking, now I will cross the line into magical realism. He's just like, how will this village react if a man with giant ragged wings shows up? Do you think your work, do you think magical realism describes your work in any way? Yeah, that's just kind of like for, like my poor editor who has to compose the jacket copy. Right. You know, that's, I just, like on an airplane, people are like, what do you do? And you're like, I write stories, you know. And they, what are they about? Well, there's this memory machine. And that's in their life. Dan Brown? Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> At what point does the memory machine idea come into it? Is that where you start, or is that something that just surprises you that kind of pops Um, into it? uh, Mostly the latter. Uh, I was writing about this one fossil. uh, Her memory is the location of a gorgon, this real beast Mm -hmm. uh, that roamed the Earth about 250 million years ago, a very long time ago, much longer than the dinosaurs, and very, very scary animal from its skeleton, very valuable skeleton, and so I kind of conjectured that fossil prices continue to go up. You know, like even in the paper lately, like Nick Cage bought the skull of a triceratops or something for a ton of money. Yeah. So the idea that like people are drawn to own these things, and who really owns them? There's this huge black market for that, but you know, does a nation own a skeleton if it's found in public lands? And so that, that's where I got started anyway. It's mm-hmm. like, what if somebody finds these fossils in the Karoo, which is probably the richest fossil bed on land in the world? Outside Cape Town. The um, the last story in the collection is is also I would say probably the most memory focused in addition to that first one, and that one's a story about a um, an old woman who's kind of slipping back into her past. Yeah, this story's called Afterworld, and it kind of takes pr- place in three different levels. It takes place in her. 80s in Ohio, uh, and it takes place in her very uh, young youth as an orphan in Hamburg during the uh, moments before the Holocaust. And, and then the third element is kind of this afterworld that she imagines as the reader. You don't know whether you should believe it literally or if it just exists within her head. Um, the genesis of that story was that I found a deportation manifest um, from the trains that, you know, the Germans were so meticulous about the records that they kept exterminating human beings. And uh, one that I found, I kept it on my bulletin board for years until I could figure out how to write about it. It listed their birth dates and uh, the place of departure and the, um, their destination, and which was Auschwitz. And the birth dates all were, I think the train left in 1942, and their birth dates were all put them under 16, and they were all girls. And, uh, you know, you, you look at the thing, and you're like, I can't work anymore today. You know, I'm done. It's shattering. Uh, so I just try. I changed their names, but I just tried to imagine the lives of these girls as they were brought away from what I imagined was an orphanage. And, uh, and then if one survived, how would she remember her friends? And is mm-hmm. it in, in a sense, as the keeper of that memory, doesn't she kind of keep them in this world until she goes? Right. And what kind of guilt and, you know, awful guilt, but also, in a sense, joy at being saved would there, would there be in that, that one individual, you know? 
You have a few old women in the collection, yeah. right? Yeah. There's another one in the, the um, this Three Gorges story, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Eun's book has a lot of old folks in it too. Yeah. You don't hear some of that? It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's just interesting to me that, you know, that a, a, you know, a male writer would write older women characters in so many of the stories. Was that just something like a phase you went through? Your old lady phase? <laughs> oh, yeah, I've been big into old ladies. No, um, I, I mean, I. Like one of the nicest compliments you paid me in that introduction is that um, the imaginative range of the work. I don't see my own life necessarily as all that interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm not mining or cannibalizing my own direct experience to write stories. Um, that, that said, fundamentally, you are writing about what you know. I'm sure you, those of you who are writers have all heard this advice. Write what you know. Um, but fundamentally, maybe that is good advice, like you're writing about heartbreak or feeling lost or feeling scared or feeling anxious, these things that you have gone through. But that doesn't mean necessarily that if you are a violin maker for 60 years, you should only write stories about violin makers. You know, I feel like you, sh- you should assume that there are enough commonalities in human experience that you can write about a Finnish washerwoman in 1512. Um, you know, Jim Shepard, who won this prize, has been a real... Uh, kind of model for me in that. He'll take these huge imaginative risks. And Andrea Barrett, too, who's mm-hmm. been a writer, has been so important to me. You know, People who are stepping outside their own direct experience, at least in terms of the stuff they can research to persuade, to give the authority in author that delivers the reality of a period of time. Fundamentally, you're still writing about falling in love, which right. you know, Flannery O'Connor said you've lived enough by the time you're 14 to write fiction for the rest of your life, you know. And where are, you know, is, so where you are in these stories is in your empathy for the characters, not so much the circumstances of your own existence or your own past experience. I think that's probably true. And also their fascinations are also mine. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if somebody's super fascinated with fossils, whether I give it, in this case, Alma's husband was, and then a boy named Luvo is much later in the story. You know, that's mine. That's me. You know, my grandmother uh, came to live with us when I was in high school. I was about 17, and she had dementia. That was kind of the first time I had heard the word Alzheimer's. Not too many people were even talking about Alzheimer's. You know, that was my mother's mother, and she came to live with us in our house. And my brothers were grown up, and, you know, I was, like, playing soccer and writing for the school newspaper and would come home, and my mother's going through this hugely complicated, difficult Mm -hmm. thing. And I didn't understand. It was self-centered. I was a teenager. Like, I scored a goal today. Does anybody care? You know? right. <laughs> and Grandma, you know, would be, like, hollering names, random names down the hallway. You know, she could beat me at Jim Rummy, and she had no idea who I was. You know, and, like, Christmas, she would open the same gift over and over, and I thought it was kind of hilarious for a while. My mother's crying, and, you know, she's like, look at this sweater. <laughs> and, you know, it's sweet, but it's also just so tragic. So in a lot of ways, this book and the old ladies is me. I mean, it's my tr- attempt to try to rectify my own ignorance about what was going on in my family mm-hmm. back then. That's interesting. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Larry. Nice talking to you. Thanks, guys. All right, cheers. Gold Boy Emerald Girl is Yeon Lee's third book and her second story collection. What caught our attention 
was the seeming simplicity of the writing married to the rich complexity of the characters. Yi Yunli. Good evening. I think I'm going to do something a little bit different. I don't do this. I've never done this before. I'm going to read somebody else's work for a page. So I'm going to read William Travers' Nights at Alexandra. And the reason, I mean, there are several reasons to read him. One is he is really just one of the greatest short story masters. And I think this is the perfect place to read his work aloud. And... And then I'll read my story, Kindness, which is written to talk, which was written to talk to that novella. So you, I'll read that after I read this. I am a 58-year-old provincial. I have no children. I have never married. Harry, I have the happiest marriage in the world. Please, when you think of me, remember that. That is what I hear most often and with the greatest pleasure for our messenger's voice as precisely record as memory allows, each quizzical intonation reflected in a glance or gesture. I must have replied something heaven knows what. It never mattered because she rarely listened. The war had upset the messenger's lives, she being an Englishwoman and he German. It brought them to Ireland and to Cloverhill, a sanctuary they most certainly would not otherwise have known. She she explained to me that she would not have found life comfortable in Hitler's Germany, and her own country could hardly be a haven for her husband. They had thought of Switzerland, but her messengers believed that Switzerland would be invaded, and the United States did not tempt them. No one but I... At the time, a youth of 15 ever used their German titles. In the town where I had been born, they were Mr. and Mrs. Messenger. Yet it seemed to me, affectation, I dare say, that in this way we should honor the strangers that they were. So that's the opening page for Trevor's Nights at Alexandra. So I'm going to read the opening pages of Kindness. You could see how the two stories talk. I am a 41-year-old woman living by myself in the same one-bedroom flat where I have always lived in the derelict building on the outskirts of Beijing. Apart from a trip to a seaside resort taken with my parents the summer I turned five, I have never traveled. I spent a year in an army camp in central China, but other than that, I have never lived away from home. In college... After a few failed attempts to convince me of the importance of being a community member, my advisor stopped acknowledging my presence, and the bed assigned to me was taken over by the five other girls in the dorm and their trunks. I have not married and naturally have no children. I have few friends, though as I have never left the neighborhood, I have enough acquaintances, most of them a generation or two older. Being around them is comforting. Never is there a day when I feel that I am alone in aging. I teach mathematics in the middle school. I do not love my job or my students. 
But I have noticed that even the most meager attention I give to the students is returned by a few of them with respect and gratitude, and sometimes inexplicable infatuation. I pity those children more than I appreciate them, as I can see where they're heading in their lives. It is a terrible thing, you see, even for an indifferent person like me, to see the bleakness lurking in someone else's life. I have no hobby that takes me outside my flat during my spare time. I do not own a television set, but I have a room full of books, at least half a century older than I am. I have never in my life hurt a soul, or if I've done any harm unintentionally, the pain I inflicted was the most trivial kind, forgotten the moment it was felt, if indeed it could be it could be felt in any way. But that cannot be a happy life, or much of a life at all, you might say. That may very well be true. Why are you unhappy? To this day, if I close my eyes, I can feel Lieutenant Wei's finger under my chin, lifting my face to a spring night. Tell me, how can we make you happy? The questions. Put to me 23 years ago, have remained unanswerable. Though it no longer matters, as you see, Lieutenant Wei died three weeks ago at 46. Mother of a teenage daughter, wife of a stationary merchant, veteran of Unit 20256 People's Liberation Army, from which she retired at 43, already afflicted with a malignant tumor. She was Major Wei in the funeral announcement. I do not know why the news of her death was mailed to me, except perhaps the funeral committee thought I was one of her long-lost friends. My name scribbled in an old address book. I wonder if the announcement was sent to the other girls, though not many of them would still be at the same address. I remember the day Lieutenant Wei's wedding invitation arrived in a distant past. And thinking then that would be the last time I would hear from her, I did not go to the funeral, as I had not gone to her wedding, both of which took place two hours by train from Beijing. It is a hassle to to travel for a wedding, but more so for a funeral. One has to face strangers' tears and words. One has to repeat words of condolence to irrelevant people. When I was five, a peddler came to our neighborhood one Sunday with a bamboo basket full of spring chicks. I was trailing behind my father for our weekly shopping of rationed food, and when the peddler put a chick in my palm, its small body soft and warm, and shivering constantly, I cried before I could ask my father to buy it for me. We were not a rich family. My father worked as a janitor. And my mother, ill for as long as I could remember, did not work. I learned, lear- and I learned early to count coins and small bills with my father before we set out to shop. It must have been a painful thing for those who knew our story to watch my father's distress, as two women offered to buy two chicks for me. My father, on the way home, warned me gently that the chicks were too young to last more than a day or two. I built a nest for the chicks out of a shoebox and ripped newspaper, and fed them water-softened millet grains. And a day later, when they looked ill, aspirin dissolved in water. Two days later, they died, 
the one I named Dot, and marked with ink on his forehead the first one to go, followed by Mushroom. I stood. I stole two eggs from the kitchen while my father went to help a neighbor fix a leaking sink. My mother was not often around in those days, and I cracked the eggs carefully and washed away the yolks and whites. But no matter how hard I tried, I could not fit chicks back into the shells. And I can see to this day the half shell on Dot's head, covering the ink spot like a funny little hat. I have learned since then that life is like that, each day ending up like a chick refusing to be returned to the egg shell. I'm going to stop here. That was that was interesting reading the two stories together. Uh, is that so, is that the first time you've done that? Write a story that's a response to someone else's story. I have do, have done that a couple times, but always I because I'm a great admirer of William Travers' work, mm-hmm. so I would choose a specific story of Travers. I, oftentimes, I feel that you write to talk to your master and. Right. You know, so I write to I I write so to hope that my stories would talk to Trevor's stories. So kindness was written to talk to Knight Alexandra, mm-hmm. but there are a couple other stories in the collection which were also written to talk to Trevor's stories. Does he Does he know that you're talking to him? <laughs> <laughs> he does. He does. He has read all three books of mine. And oh, that's interesting. Yes. And is this something that you think you're going to? continue to do? Is this a, a good way for you to, to work, or is this just kind of your approach for this particular book? I, I think, you know, it, in a way, yes, but may not. In a, in a way, I, I spend most of my days talking to dead people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think in a way, reading is a very good way to talk to people that you, you don't have access. Mm-hmm. So I talk to Tolstoy often, but he I mean, he can't hear me. He doesn't laugh at me. I mean, I'm sure he would have laughed at me. If I talked to Maintain, and I laughed at him, and he didn't know. So all these things, you, I, I think when I write a story or when I write a book, I have certain things that I want to talk to certain writers. Mm-hmm. I have certain topics that I want to argue with you know, certain writers. So in a way, I think in the future with each book, there will be you know, a pile of writers that I want to talk to. You know, it may not just be Trevor, but for this book, because it's a collection of short stories, because mm-hmm. I've been, I was reading his stories you know, constantly when I was writing the book. So I think his stories have been on my mind when I was working on these stories. The, the characters in these stories, are, for the most part, they're kind of lonely. Would you say isolated characters? Yes. And is that out of Trevor, or is this something that, it's out that, of Trevor. You're, that you're bringing? I think, you know, in a way, you, you're drawn, like, as a writer, you're always drawn to certain characters. Mm-hmm. You know, as Tony said, I, I like to write older characters, and I don't know why. But you're drawn to their stories. You're also, in a way, you're drawn to them because you want to understand them. And... 
many of my characters, yes, they, indeed they are lonely characters, but they're lonely not because they not because they are born lonely. I think the loneliness, or more like solitude, are actually the choice is theirs. They chose to they choose to be lonely, or they choose solitude as a way to to say this is me. Mm-hmm. This is you know what I want to do. So you know I admire them, and they are not passive, or, you know, or pathetic, but they are they they make that active decision because they want to hang on to something. Especially you know many of my characters are you know many of my stories were set in China. If you live in China in the past century, your life mm-hmm. would have been you know in, infected of um, affected affected by the political and the historical, you know, situations. And if you, you know, if you let yourself go, if you go with history, if you go with politics, you will be, you would probably be less lonely or less painful. But that also means you're giving up a lot of things. So I like to imagine my characters are very stubborn. They don't want to give up those things. Right. Yes. And you think that would, that, it seemed to me that that would be true of characters anywhere. That just- is true. I totally agree with that, yes. And in any country, yes. Mm-hmm. You, you sort of have to... I mean, my characters, they think a lot, but many characters in many you know, good novels or great books, they, they're thinkers. You know, they have to have the, those, they have the loneliness or solitude to think. And so, yes. Uh, what, what is it... How do you... Um, how do you get your ideas for stories? Where do those come from? Did you... Now, obviously, this one, you're specifically writing to that story. Mm-hmm. But in general, you know, what, what, what is your process like? My process... I, I'm a very nosy person, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I eavesdrop. I eavesdrop a lot. And there are all sorts of ways to eavesdrop. You know, you can go into a subway to listen to other people's, you know, conversation on the phone. Or you can also go onto the internet. I'm a, I, for a while, I was working on a book. I can give you one example. And I read in a newspaper, I mean, actually on, uh, online, I read online that there was this young woman in China who, when she was 17, she thought her father was having an affair mm-hmm. with another woman. So what she did was she waited until she turned 18 so she could sue her father. And then the moment, the day she turned 18, she sued her father for having a mistress. Because and her reason was her father was a communist member and a communist party member and as a party member you could not, you should not keep a mistress. Mm-hmm. So she sued and and she didn't have a case. So what she did, I mean, this is you know 21st century. So she went online. She built a blog, and the blog's title was "My Father Is Less a Creature Than a Dog or a Pig Because He Sleeps with Another Woman," <laughs> and. It's one of my favorite blogs. Oh, there you go. <laughs> you probably follow her as long as I do. I just feel that, you know, I was fascinated by this young woman's hatred. And what I did was not quite, you know, I, I sort of stalked her online. No, I followed her website every day. And, and there were many women who would, you know, on the, on the, they would leave comments they would hail her as, you know, as the, as the young heroine of China in the 21st century, and she was doing this great work to, to save China and all these things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, of course, as a nosy person, I actually thought about leaving a message, you know, condemning her. <laughs> and I also thought about, you know, making up 
an identity to do that. So, so I had this whole scheme of making up, you know, to pretend that I was an older man, and I was going to leave a message telling her she could not treat life in such a simple-minded way. I mean, I had all these schools. I actually didn't carry out, but my character did that for me. Right. So that was where the story came from. Yes, your, your characters go out to do these things that you are a little bit shy to do yourself. <laughs> <laughs> There's a part in what you read where the um, Lieutenant Wei um, asks, you know, what would make you happy? Uh, and, I, and I wonder about that as I, as I read your collection. It doesn't seem like these characters are, are after happiness so much. You know, they're after something else. Would you agree with that? What, what do you think that they're... There's, there's something about all of them across all the stories. Yes. I, I, I don't think... I, I agree with you. I'm not sure if they want happiness. You know, they would like to be happy, but... I think, you know, I, I like to imagine my characters sort of in a way, you know, talking about the his, history and politics in China. You know, it was like, it, it was like a river flying, you know, flowing past really fast. It was a flood. So most people would let go and, you know, just, you know, float with the water. And if you, if you do not struggle against the water, if you do not str- struggle against, you know, politics or history, you might as well just survive pretty easily. And mm-hmm. is that happiness? Not, that's not happiness to me. And that's, I sort of feel that's a happiness Lieutenant Wei wants the narrator to have, is to, you know, to go on a, to live easy, easy life, to find a husband, to, you know, have a child, to be, you know, a normal person. But my character's Oftentimes, I feel they just hang on to something, so they don't—they don't be—they don't want to be swept away by that water. So, mm-hmm. they are hanging on to any, you know, tree or grass or root or anything, so not to be swept away. So maybe they're just after—I don't know—stillness in the water. Yeah, there's there's like a certain. I mean, I was—I I think of them almost as valuing maybe. Um, their own integrity or dignity over happiness? Yes. Uh, for instance, I, I think you're, you're probably thinking about the, the man, the teacher Faye and the man like him. Or I'm thinking of a lot of the characters, <laughs> actually. Of many of my characters. Yeah. Yes, I think in a way, many of my characters, I think, you know, some, some people tell me that my characters are a little bit passive or they're not angry enough about mm. their lives about their situations. And I think in a way, if I think my characters oftentimes feel that if they are angry about the injustice or about you know, the situations they are trapped into, they sort of put them into a situation to, to, on the equal, to be an equal, equal food with the people who trapped them. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I feel like stubbornness is really something that my characters all share. So they are very stubborn. They just don't want to they won't don't want to let those people just win at any moment. So yes, they they would choose to be humiliated rather than to admit they have done nothing wrong. And are these stories set I I, I couldn't quite tell whether they were set I mean obviously the blog one seems to be very current, but otherwise are are they set now or are they set kind of you know in the 80s or 90s or sometime a little bit further back? Is, it, is there a mix in there? 
Mm-hmm. I think most of the stories I said, would, I would say, in the 90s and mm-hmm. 21st century. But again, you can never, you know, in China, you can never say where the story starts. The story doesn't start, you know, the day the story happens. The story starts 100 years before that, or right. 50 years before that. So, so, yes, I think many of my characters, even though, you know, the stories are about today's China, every mm-hmm. character brings something from, their, from his or her past to that moment. So you can never say the story is about, you know, a young woman <laughs> writing mm-hmm. a blog condemning his father, uh, her father because there would be, you know, a lot of history coming with other characters. So, right. yeah. I like, I like to, ex- you know, sort of to explore that, how you... Again, I think that's how short stories, you know, can do really well. You can write a, you know, epic novel, 800 pages about generations. But you can you should also be able to write that in 20 pages. So how how do you condense time? How mm-hmm. do you, you know, condense three generations of history in one story? That is always very fascinating to me. Now that you've been in the US for a while, do you think that your stories and novels will start to move more into your experience in the U.S., or is do you still have a lot more you you know you want to say about about China and that setting and those characters? Yes, you know I I notice that my latest stories take place. You know they start to sort of America. I I don't think that these are you know my decisions. Sort of America started to creep into my <laughs> stories, and and I like that too because. Now it's, you know, we always say the world is smaller now because everybody is connected. So many of my stories are in America, not only about Chinese people in America, Mm -hmm. but also just about Americans. I like to think about how to write about America and Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's one story that starts in America. There's the couple, their teenage daughter, they lose their daughter in a car accident Mm -hmm. and they go back to China to have a, a surrogate have yes. a baby for them. Yes. That is, again, you know, the world is becoming smaller. If you look at this, this is a story about, you know, a middle-aged couple losing a daughter. In a, they lost a daughter in a traffic accident, and so they wanted to have a surrogate mother because to have another baby, mm-hmm. but first of all, they were not very well off in America. They had to spend a lot of money. Also, they worried about the American legal system, you know, what the surrogate mother, what rights the right. surrogate mother would have, so they chose to go back to China to hire a young woman, you know, as an incubation, as mm-hmm. incubator. And because there was no legal system there to, to you know, I mean, first of all, it was illegal in China to have a surrogate mother. But if you know the system, you can work around the system. So they find they found a young woman to do that for them. So they would just pay her a little bit of money and got a baby in the end. But Things never worked out that way. You move back and forth between novels and short stories mm-hmm. as well. Um, are you is, are you going to continue to write stories beyond this? Yes. Is this a form that you're committed to, do you think? I'm very much committed to mm-hmm. stories. Yes, I like to, again, you know, talking about, you talk to your mentor. You know, if we look at Trevor's, Mm-hmm. Career, you know, he has one collection and one novel in that pattern for many, many years, and I do love both formats very much. So I imagine I would do that too. Okay, thank you very much. Great, thank you, Larry. Death is not an option. 
is Suzanne Rebecca's first book. What made this collection stand out for us was the darkness, the humor, and the audacity of this debut author, uh, Suzanne Rebecca. Rebecca. Hey, thank you so much for coming. It's a real honor to be here. Um, I'm going to read the very ending of my story, Very Special Victims. And uh, just for a bit of context, basically all you need to know, at this point in the story, uh, the protagonist, who's a 20-something woman, um, is being visited by uh, a relative of hers who had abused her in the past. And he has had some sort of religious awakening and is coming to kind of reconcile with her about uh, what happened between them in the past. So at the point I'm going to start at, he's just arriving. She was at the kitchen sink, doing dishes in the pastel wash of the setting sun. And when she heard his footsteps, she looked out the screen door and her mind went blank. Somewhere in her brain, she had mislaid his significance. His face, bobbing up the back porch stairs, was blandly ubiquitous as a television personality's. But then he said her name. Conventional wisdom claimed smell as the beeline to memory. But for her, it was the sound of her own name on someone's tongue. A calling card, coded with sensory nuance, redolent of the nature of their claim on her and their preferred method of collection. He rapped on the screen door, and it never occurred to her not to let him in. The uncle made a fussy show of scraping his shoes on the doormat. He looked the same. She hadn't seen him in five years. May I come in, he said, although he was already. Yeah, she said. She flapped an arm toward the dining table. She didn't know what to say next, so she said, Want some water? No, 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 no trouble on my account, please. There was a charged subtext to this employed like a flexed muscle. She leaned against the sink. He stood by the refrigerator with his hands at his sides. So my mother said you might come, she said. Yes, he said. He kept looking at her searchingly. He wore a good quality coat, beige and belted tightly. His hair was slightly grayer, and his eyes were still round and harmless looking, with jaunty little eyebrows like a dog's vestigial markings. He didn't smell the same, though. There had been an acidic sharpness. It was gone. The uncle cleared his throat. So, I've been trying to start a clean slate with my life, he said. Your mom may have mentioned it. He waited. She said nothing. He went on. Part of that is trying to make things right with those I've wronged. And I know it must be upsetting for you to see me. And I wrestled with this. You have no idea. I asked myself, is it selfish to dredge this up? Do I have any right? And maybe I don't. Maybe I don't. But this is not about reducing karmic debt. Please understand that. This is not something to cross off a to-do list. This, he said, inhaling as if about to plunge underwater, is the central black hole of my life. She sneezed violently. Excuse me. Bless you, he blurted. He seemed grateful for the opportunity to bestow this benediction. Look, she said, tucking her hair behind her ears, this really is not necessary. I think it is. Well, she said, maybe for you it is. If this is a big thing for you, say what you need to say. Go for it. I appreciate it, he said. 
His constant head-bobbing and knee-jerk deference made her feel like a guru in a kung fu movie attended by a bowing, scraping apprentice. She smiled coldly. She articulated the action to herself as she performed it. I am smiling coldly. I don't want to just make a speech at you, the uncle said. I was hoping we could have a kind of give and take. His voice tilted up. She recognized it, that cocksure wheedling. I don't think so, she said. The uncle's round eyes began to fill up, taking on the hazy, mirage-like illusion of movement that preceded full-fledged weeping. Then he blinked the water away. All right, he said. He looked down at his galoshes. She remembered how his vacated shoes and his socked feet used to give off an earthy, pungent odor, not unpleasant, the expansive, warm smell of something tightly contained and suddenly freed. I just want to say one thing, he said. He extended an arm as though tempted to grab her for emphasis, but quickly withdrew it. What I did, he said, was not your fault. I know, I've read the literature, I know a lot of people grew up thinking there's something wrong with them, that they're to blame, and they are not. It was me. It was all my sickness. It could have been anyone. You were there, and you were accessible. That was it. That was it. He made a slicing gesture, then winced at his own immoderation. She pictured him reading the literature. She had read it, too. Then she said, I'd feel better if it did have something to do with me. Is that sick? The uncle took a breath to speak and stopped short. He was at a loss. He opened and closed his mouth. He took a step forward and back again. Then he did a strange thing. He bowed his head and covered his eyes with his hand. She leaned against the stove and watched him for a while, earnestly but without investment, the way children watch parades and inaugurations and tedious civic rituals in general. The uncle's fingers dug hard into his temple. The niece thought of self-defense. She thought of calling the police, much as she hated them. She wondered if this was a dangerous situation. Technically, there was a lawbreaker and a deviant in her home. But she could see that something in him had shut against her. She was an emblem. He distorted at will, a monster disarmed. He had to turn her into something else. And for a moment, she felt that he had succeeded. Her hands were folded in front of her, her chin pointed down, and she thought she must resemble an old daguerreotype she saw long ago in a textbook, a pioneer woman on a prairie, salt of the earth and grimly unsexed, frozen in the eternal posture of one who bears up, bears up, bears up, then dies. The uncle was now sitting on a wooden chair as though a hand had dropped him there by the scruff of the neck. He rubbed his forehead with thumb and fingers. His flesh pleated and reddened. He was right there in front of her. She stared at his hands. They were small hands, chapped and pinkish, with spatulate fingers and broad nails. And the first time they touched her, the back of the neck, brushing, she had not been afraid. She had never been afraid of him. What she felt now, what she had always felt, was collusion. Uneasy, dead-eyed, and leaden. It began in the back of the throat and slowly sifted downward, dragging heaviness to her base like a punching bag with a weighted bottom rooting her to the ground with the knowledge that she belonged in this kitchen with this man, that she was born here and would die here, and that there was no other scenario in which she would ever be so holy herself. She coughed, and the uncle looked up. He looked at the corner of the wall where two cupboards met. I told Amelia about us, he said. 
She looked at him sharply. For the first time since his arrival, her interest was piqued. She forgave you? The uncle shook his head. He wasn't pleading now. He was just looking at her sanely and tiredly. He was trying to get through to a tiresome woman. Honestly, he said, I'm not sure if she even believed me. The niece snorted, an instinctive response. She caught the scent of incipient melodrama in her nostrils like seeping gas, and it terrified her. She suddenly couldn't stop talking. Really, she said, it's not really something I think about on a daily basis. I mean, do you just sit around thinking about it all the time? Because that's almost as creepy as having done it in the first place. She laughed. Isn't it? It was my vagueness that made her not believe me, the uncle said, sadly. I need to name it. No more euphemism. We need to stop referring to what happened as it. I need to stand up and say what we did in concrete terms. To her, and to you, and to myself. She could think of nothing worse. She knew she couldn't let this happen. She was moving toward him now, and the walls of the kitchen seemed to narrow around them as she came closer, feeling taller and wider, her shadow throwing darkness over him like a tarp. What are you doing, the uncle said. She stepped forward. She knew she had to stop him, but she couldn't think of anything else to say. So she just stared at the uncle's unremarkable face as if she could freeze it there, and after a few moments of staring, she found it, the look she'd searched for in the third man, the taking over and the leaving behind, the bullish emptiness of the eyes. It was there. Then it wasn't. His face seemed to skip a frame, and he was turning around, the uncle. He was clutching at his collar with one hand. He was moving toward the door. I'll go, he said, not looking at her. I'll just go. I'm sorry. He did not sound sorry. He threw the words like baking soda on a grease fire. He was another chastened, decent man who closed the door without slamming it and walked through the rain to his sad car. It was so stupid, it was criminal. The car revved up and crunched over gravel. The kitchen grew chilly. As darkness set in, she wrapped her arms around her torso. She continued to stand there like that because it was cold, because she could hear the trains skip, skip like a bad heartbeat, and she knew the morning glories were closing their throats for the night, and because it was hard in that clenched fist of twilight to think of anything other than the men she had told and what they had said to her. Things like, some of the sex stuff, it's not healthy, and I am so, so, so sorry, and get over here, and nothing will ever hurt you again, and why did you let him? And I can't. And what can I do? And this is repetitive. And somewhere in the world, people are starving. And you have to tell me what feels good. Please, for me. What was the point of it all? This exhaustive cycle of call and response, disclosure and reaction. She thought with relief of the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh men from whom she would never hear a word on the subject. She heard sirens in the distance, wailing and persecutory, in hot pursuit of someone. She wondered who was being chased. Her first thought was of the uncle, but that couldn't be. Who would have told, and why would they care? The one they should be chasing, she thought, was her. She imagined herself lying on pavement, the blue uniform silhouettes of men looming over her. How grateful she would be as she waited for them to deliver their most merciful line, that rote benediction bestowed on every single person in trouble, the insane and the reasonable, homeless and naked, innocent and guilty, uncles and nieces, 
you have the right to remain silent. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Thanks. The one thing I think people might not have gotten, you talk about the third man, the fourth man, the fifth man. Can you just explain what that is in the context of the story? Um, Well, throughout the story, the the protagonist has uh, an ex-boyfriend who's a pretty steady, constant presence in her life. And uh, the story actually starts out in kind of a fairy tale-ish way with with, um, her saying, there were three men and then sort of um, including a summary of each of the three boyfriends' reaction to this news that she told them that I was molested as a child. And uh, one, the first one, it's almost like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, like each, each interaction just gets worse and worse, and there's never one that's just right. Um, but the, the first boyfriend she tells uh, uh, basically says, oh, I feel so sorry for you that I can no longer sleep with you. Goodbye. Um, and the second one sort of blames her. And then this third one said, oh, something like that happened to me too. But he, come, he becomes obsessed with uh, seeking retribution on her behalf. And so that's why she breaks up with him. And, uh, yeah, so the whole story, in addition to, to being about someone sort of coming to terms with that having happened to them, it's about how to parse it and explain it to the other people you're going to encounter in your life in romantic relationships and friendship relationships in a way that doesn't reduce you to the sum of that incident alone. And she makes the decision to not talk about it. To anymore, never right? tell any, anyone about that again, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. The story is actually in two parts. Mm-hmm. Were they, did you, was that an idea you had to begin with, or did you...? No, actually... Um, yeah, the story's in two parts. The first story, which is called Good Samaritan Points, takes place when the protagonist is uh, a little girl. She's about eight or nine, and she's just coming off of having disclosed to her family that this had happened. And so, uh, and in that story, she actually is named. Her name is Kath. Um, and then the second part of the story is her as a young 20-something woman, and in that part of the story, she's not named at all. She's only referred to as the niece. Um, and yeah, uh, uh, originally those were just two completely separate, disparate stories that were written years mm-hmm. apart from one another. And when the the book was first being, when the book was was bought by the publisher, um, I initially didn't include Good Samaritan Points, the story about the the little girl experience. Um, I was just kind of reluctant to have a a book that had too much of that kind of content in it because I didn't want the book to be sort of labeled and pigeonholed as being, you know, revolving around the issue of trauma. I didn't want that to overpower the rest of the book. Um, But my my editor kind of convinced me that 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 story should go in there and that it should be a counterpart to the other one. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I ended up sort of conflating them so that they became one story about the same person at two different junctures of her life. I think think maybe your editor was right. What do you think? In retrospect, I think she was, yeah. 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 Well, I, I mean, I'll tell you why. I think because what you do is you take a situation that could be, you know, a movie of the week, right, or something, and I think you avoid every single cliche that has to do with it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's worth seeing the beginning of that story right. to understand it better. So that's not a question. And <laughs> <laughs> I won't give you an answer. <laughs> right. Right. Now this is kind of the centerpiece of your collection. I mean, like literally, mm-hmm. it's right in the middle, right? Yeah. 
And you, just to give people the idea of, of the whole book, it's kind of a range of, of young women and kind of get older as the book goes along. Is that, is that a fair That's true, story? yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, did you, again, I, I'm always interested in this, was this just an order you put in, into at the end, or was this a concept you had that you were going to kind of, you know, capture a certain slice of, of, of a woman's life? Um, well, I think I was always aware that I wanted to capture a certain slice of a woman's mm-hmm. life because I'd never really read a book that captured cer- certain parts and facets of being a young woman to my satisfaction. Right. And what I wanted to do is, was write the book that I wished had existed mm-hmm. um, and that I, that I wished I, I could read um, and relate to. Um, but yeah, the order of the stories didn't come as a premeditated conscious thing. It, it actually ended up, the earliest story in that book, which I wrote um, when I was still in graduate school, has a protagonist who's only 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And that's the youngest protagonist in the book. And then the most recent story I wrote has a protagonist in her 30s. And that was the, you know, the last story that I wrote. And so I think it just kind of accidentally fell into this pattern of me pro- progressively writing older protagonists as I right. got older myself. Um, and, I, and I realized that that kind of formed a, an evolutionary pattern. Mm-hmm. And you, do you feel like you've kind of, that's it, you've covered that period of life and you're <laughs> going to move on? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I think there's... I'm working on a novel right now, but I'm also periodically kind of cheating on that novel by writing stories on the side, and there's a lot of infidelity going on <laughs> with that situation. Um, and I find that the the stories that I'm writing are still, they still kind of revolve around younger women, but I think that the differences, they're women who, who have had very radically different uh, backgrounds from mm-hmm. myself. I mean, none of the characters in this present book are me or based on me, but they do all share... Um, geographic similarities, uh, religious background, like very basic things mm-hmm. that served as kind of a template for a certain type of character. Um, but the, the, the newest things I've been working on have been kind of based on uh, some of the women I used to work with when I worked with uh, homeless youth in San Francisco. I was a grant writer at a nonprofit for homeless youth for a few mm-hmm. years and came in contact with people who had experiences that were just so absolutely the opposite of anything I'd ever experienced. And, yeah, I found myself kind of exploring the same kind of tropes and themes, but through the eyes of some of these people who have experienced them in radically different ways. It's, I think one of the things I find interesting in the book is, um, you know, and again, it's not like in every story something bad happens, but mm. just the ordinariness of the uncle, of some of the other Characters, it's really um, again. This is an observation more than a question. Um, I, you know, I think that's is that something that you were trying for? Were you trying to make things just ordinary? You make you use humor in a very um, dark situations, for instance. Is that you know a conscious approach on your behalf? I think it's both conscious and unconscious. I think mm-hmm. that's just naturally my my kind of absurdist lens through which I see the world, but at the same time, I think the humor is a conscious attempt on my part to demystify these very dark experiences that just exist as these, as, as these kind of mythologized, um, fetishized experiences in popular culture and, and even in literature. Um, like with the molestation issue, I mean, that's a, a hot-button issue that's on everyone's lips, it's discussed on talk shows, you know, it's not something that's a secret anymore. 
And yet I think that the way in which it's discussed and thought of in the culture is still so narrow and circumscribed and uh, reductive um, that it needs, I mean, it sounds silly to say, the issue of molestation needs some humor sprinkled into it, but I think it kind of does, um, just to demystify and defamiliarize it and uh, just point out the mundanity of it um, in a way that that makes it... uh, just easier to to approach and easier to understand. Tell uh, tell me about the tiger. Now you have a tiger in the cover of the book, mm-hmm. and you dedicated the book to a tiger. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the tiger that the book is dedicated to is a Siberian tiger named Tatiana, who um, until 2007 she lived in the San Francisco Zoo, and there was an incident actually on Christmas night or Christmas Eve. Um, where these three guys broke into the zoo after hours. They were kind of taunting the tiger, throwing stuff into her cage. They were all drunk. The tiger leaped out of her enclosure, hunted them down, killed one of them, uh, injured the other two. And uh, the police came in response to a 911 call and immediately shot the tiger through the head and killed it, an Mm -hmm. endangered Siberian tiger who was being taunted by jerks. Um, so when that incident happened, I, I mean, it was highly tragic that one of the men died, of course, but I, my sympathies were uh, firmly al- <laughs> aligned with the tiger. <laughs> I mean, I think partly it's because I've always preferred animals to people, but also um, that incident t- just somehow touched a nerve with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've always been kind of fascinated by this uh, this trend of exotic animal breeding that's taking place in the U.S. And um, the reason there's a tiger on the cover of the book is that one of the stories features a, um, a illegally bred exotic tiger who is the pet of a little boy. And that was this, I actually got the idea for that story from a newspaper article uh, mm-hmm. about that very issue, so an incident that took place in Minnesota. And so I had that floating around in my head, and then when this zoo incident happened, I think that just kind of pulled the trigger on me saying, all right, I I have to write about, I have to incorporate this tiger into a story somehow, because I'm not so sure why why I I feel such an urgency Mm -hmm. to do justice to the figure of a tiger in a story, but I do. And and I think it had to do ultimately with um, the whole concept of mystery and demystification and monsters um, that sort of runs through the book as a a thread or a theme. and really the tiger is the ultimate monster because it, it alone has the ability to, to eat somebody, <laughs> and yet it's, it's, it's only acting on its instinctive nature. It's, right. it's, the motivations aren't, uh, aren't to do anything but, to, but what comes naturally to it. So, yeah, I think the, the tiger, the reason I dedicated that book was a tiger, to a tiger was to try and do justice to that, to that kind of... Um, um, homage to, to life's mysteries mm-hmm. and life's unexplainable things. So did you say, I want the tiger on the cover? Or was yeah, that... <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I... There must be a tiger on the cover yes, of this book. Yes, I did. Well, when I, I... It seems like so many books of fiction by... Especially by younger women seem to feature a, a woman's legs yeah. only like from, like from the knee down. And that mm-hmm. seems to be like a huge trend that's going on. So I actually... I wrote an email to my to my publisher very early on in the process and said, I don't want anyone's legs. I don't want a woman's face looking wistfully into the distance. 
and I, I don't want like a diaphanous dress blowing in the breeze. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I found this picture of a tiger, which was kind of a, a half view of, of a tiger, mm-hmm. sort of coming in from the side. And I, I sent her that picture and said, this is my ideal cover. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, she, and she said, well, I'm not sure if just a tiger by itself would, would necessarily um, attract readers or they might get the wrong idea of what kind of book it is and think it's some sort of safari adventure or something. And so she, the, the designer ended up coming up with this, this great concept to have the arm reaching mm-hmm. toward the tiger, which I think sort of symbolizes the, the entire mood of the book, which is people kind of being attracted to danger, uh, not really knowing that it's dangerous, or, right. or, or people uh, just sort of driven to discomfort themselves somehow. What does um, what does death? It's not an option. What does that uh, signify? I mean, if you read the first story, you kind of get mm-hmm. that idea. But can you just explain that? I'm I'm always interested in, in titles. Yeah. And, and how did that become the title of the collection? Was that the best title to be mm-hmm. the title of the collection, or was that you know was there some other reason? Mm. Um, well, the, the title itself comes from a game that the high school girls in the title story play, and it's a game that I used to play with my friends in high school, which mm-hmm. is you take a bunch of absolutely odious, repugnant options, usually having to do with who, who, you, who, who you might sleep with, like the three most repugnant human beings on the planet, and saying, <laughs> okay, you have to choose one of these people to be with, and it, inevitably the answer would be, none of them, I'd rather die. And then the response would be, well, death isn't an option, and you know, death is not going to be an escape route for you in this game, so you have to pick one of them. Right, right. And uh, so that was how that, that story got its title, was because the girls are playing that game. But it's also, um, I think, a story about uh, impossible choices and being faced with such a plethora of choices, a smorgasbord in front of you, and being absolutely paralyzed by those choices. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what that story is basically about. And... Uh, it just seemed like a, a good thematic fit for the for the whole collection, and kind of a you know a, I wanted I wanted the title to reflect the fact that the that the book is a little bit provocative and has a little bit of an edge, and, mm-hmm. and isn't about like s- sweet coming of age milestones of of young girls, and I think that the harshness of it of having the word death in the title kind of underscored that. It's a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, the carnivorous animal on the cover helped as well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm stuck here for a second. Hold on. Sure. Uh, as um, in that first story, you know, I think it's interesting that when you say death is not an option, there's these. The funny part of that is that there are these completely ridiculous choices you would never have to make. Right. 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 And they tell you death is not an option, right. as if that's the only way out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's no wiggle room. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are you What are you working on now? Are you? Um, I'm working on a novel, a mm-hmm. historical novel about Walt Whitman. Mm-hmm. And, how, and how did you get interested in that, in Walt Whitman in particular? Um. Well, it actually wasn't because I've always been a, a zealous fan of Walt Whitman. Uh, it's actually it actually came about in an extremely lowbrow fashion. Um, which, well, I guess not that lowbrow. It involved PBS. I, <laughs> 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 public television was involved. Um, 
I was watching one of those uh, American Experience documentaries, right. and it just happened to be about Whitman. And I knew a little bit about him. You know, I knew I knew of his of his poetry. I was a fan of his poetry. Um, but the period that they the documentary spent a lot of time on involved him as a young journalist going to New Orleans for three months and working on a newspaper there. And while he was there, he was exposed for the first time to uh, slavery and to the slave markets and, and to just all these aspects of America that he never even knew existed. And I think that that had a big impact on his tendency to, to idolize and idealize America. I mm-hmm. think that that experience enabled him to be able to still kind of valorize America, but to do it in a way that does a lot more justice to its diversity and its problems and its its dark side as well. So I was just, I can't really explain why, but I was just really inexplicably moved by the depiction of, mm-hmm. of that kind of inner change that he experienced, that kind of sea change and how it changed his outlook and how he, he started writing the poems that eventually became Leaves of Grass like right after that mm-hmm. experience. And he also left New Orleans very abruptly, and there's really no explanation why. Um, and I saw that as an opportunity to do, do some poetic reinvention. Right, of, to, to fill in why. Exactly, maybe, or... to fill in the why. So it, I think part of it was it opened up a very intriguing question mm-hmm. for me of why. And, uh, and also, I, th- I think I just, I just kind of realized this a few months ago, why, why it has such resonance for me. And... I don't want to embarrass my father, who's here tonight, but my, my father went on a, a road trip to the Deep South um, mm-hmm. during the early 60s with a college buddy. That's right, Dad, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he, <laughs> when he, um, it was a short trip, and I mean, nothing really of note happened that I know of. Um, but <laughs> So that was a great inspiration for my book. He might um, not have told you everything, actually. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, Anyway, cut to decades later, um, I remember once I, I wanted to go visit a friend who lived in North Carolina. I was living in Mich- I grew up in Michigan, was in Michigan at the time. And uh, I told my dad that I wanted to, to go visit this friend in North Carolina. And, and I was surprised by his reaction. It was very strong. And he said, Don't, if you, you can't go down there. You have to be extremely careful down there. You could get killed. And, I, and I'm sorry, Dad. But, <laughs> My dad is not an alarmist, but he, he had his, you know, a strong reaction to that. And I kept asking him, why, why are you saying that? Why? And, and he, wouldn't, he wouldn't elaborate. He wouldn't go into detail about, about, about why. So that became like a huge issue of speculation between my sister and I. We're like, what happened to dad in the South? <laughs> what, is, what is dad's secret, se- southern secret? Um, and I don't really think there was a southern secret. I think right. that he, he went down there, and he was... Uh, he just witnessed kind of, as a passersby, a lot of that insane segregation and, and, uh, and prejudice. And I don't think he saw anything too extreme, but I think just the, the, the air was in, kind of impregnated with menace mm-hmm. and, with, uh, and with something that he had never been confronted with before growing up in New York. Um, and I think on, on so, I was just thinking about this the other day, and it occurred to me that's probably a connection as to why I'm so intrigued by Whitman's sojourn to the South and mm. his subsequent um, complete change when he when he returned. So. Well, that's Sorry, interesting. Dad. <laughs> so you're looking for a big change from what you were writing before. Is that intentional, just to go with something completely different? Um, it wasn't really intentional. I mean, inten- uh, originally I, I intended to, uh, to write a novel, a, very, a novel in a contemporary setting um, mm-hmm. about a, 
about the foster care system. And I started to write that novel, and it just, I just, for some reason, I couldn't locate the urgency mm-hmm. in that novel. I just had no, no emotional stake in it anymore. I abandoned it. Um, but with the Whitman thing, I just kind of glommed onto it, and it felt urgent to me, and it felt like it, uh, even though it was a departure in terms of subject matter and time period and character for me, I think it still sort of throbbed with that obsession that informed my other book. Mm-hmm. It was my obsession with, with certain emotional issues, with certain milestones, with, right. with certain transformations, um, and with, with certain de- demystifications. And I, th- and I think that that was why I felt very compelled to, to write about the subject matter, even though it, it is quite a departure. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck with that, and I hope you'll keep writing stories as well. I will. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks.